Dozens of cargo ships are diverting their course from the Suez Canal to avoid encountering Houthi militia in Yemen who've been attacking vessels because of Israel's offensive in Gaza. So now they are moving to another narrative, which is we are the only group who so strongly with the Palestinians. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the news about the U.S. economy keeps getting better. Today comes news that prices have actually fallen. And Globe Santa has received 17,000 requests this year from people in need. The editor of Globe Santa's newspaper story says at any time, anyone could become a person in need. One thing that Globe Santa has taught me is that countless people of all income levels are just one diagnosis, one job lost due to COVID, away from financial ruin. That story and much more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Sang. The U.S. Supreme Court will not step into a 2020 election subversion case against former President Donald Trump, at least not for now. Special Counsel Jack Smith had asked the justices to skip over a federal appeals court and fast-track a decision on whether the former president has absolute immunity from prosecution. The high court did not offer a reason for its decision. This action now turns to the federal appeals court in Washington, which is set to hear arguments in the matter on January 9th. The U.N. Security Council's voted 13 to 0 for a resolution that calls for faster delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza and the creation of what it calls conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. Russia abstained, as did the United States. The ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, explains why. The resolution was not perfect. The resolution did not condemn Hamas's really horrific acts of October 7th, and we have regularly raised that as a concern in the council. More of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield's interview coming up on NPR's All Things Considered. Gaza is facing the imminent risk of famine. NPR's Jason DeRose reports that's according to the latest estimate from a global partnership of organizations that monitors food security. The Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, or IPC, says the air bombardment and ground operations, coupled with severely restricted humanitarian access, have resulted in what it calls catastrophic levels of acute food insecurity. If current trends continue, the IPC projects the entire population of Gaza, some 2.2 million people, will be classified as in either a food crisis or famine by early February. IPC says this is the highest share of people facing acute food insecurity that it's ever classified for any area or country. Famine is marked by extreme lack of food, starvation, and exhaustion of coping capacities. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Children's Hospital in Seattle suing the Texas Attorney General's office after it demanded medical records of transgender kids. KRA's Elena Rivera has more. Texas passed a law earlier this year banning gender-affirming care for trans kids under 18. Seattle Children's Hospital says in its lawsuit that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton asked for information on the treatment, diagnoses, and prescriptions of patients. But the hospital says it hasn't and isn't providing gender-affirming care for any minors from Texas, and that Texas doesn't have jurisdiction over patient records in Washington. The hospital says demanding these records is a fear tactic to stop Texans from seeking care in other states. For NPR News, I'm Elena Rivera in Dallas. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials will open a new overflow site in Cambridge tonight for homeless families who are on the wait list for the state's family shelter system. The facility is only open at night. It'll support up to 70 families. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports it comes as community groups and religious institutions also step up to help. The Bethel AME Church in Jamaica Plain has converted office space into housing for eight Haitian families who are all new arrivals to Massachusetts. Daniel St. Ival is a member of the church and volunteers as an English teacher twice a week. The best thing is that you have folks who are on fire to learn and they're extremely grateful as well. It makes it all around easy for everyone to work together. The temporary shelter is supported by a grant from the city of Boston and the nonprofit Immigrant Family Services Institute. It's part of an effort to increase overflow space in recent weeks. State officials say there are now 367 families on the shelter wait list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Large buildings in Boston will be required to be carbon neutral in the coming decades. The city has finalized new regulations setting carbon-neutral standards for buildings by 2050. The regulations extend to non-residential buildings 20,000 square feet and more, as well as residential buildings with at least 15 units. City officials say those large buildings represent about 5% of all buildings in the city, but account for about 40% of citywide greenhouse gas emissions. The state is proposing regulations that will prohibit new development in certain coastal areas prone to flooding. The action comes as the state faces increasing threats from flooding and sea level rise due to climate change. Here's WBUR's Barbara Moran. The proposed regulations would still allow renovation of homes in the so-called coastal floodplain, but could require that construction include mitigation measures like dune or wetland restoration. Bonnie Heupel is commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. You could rebuild, but if you're rebuilding, you'd have to do things to make that more resilient. And that's, we think, both better for the homeowner, you know, and better for those around them. The state will hold public hearings on the proposed regulations early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Economist and Nobel laureate Robert Solo has died. Solo was a longtime professor at MIT who was awarded a Nobel Prize in Economics in 1987. In 2014, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor in the United States. Solo died yesterday at his home in Lexington. He was 99 years old. In the forecast, clear and cold tonight, down in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, highs in the mid-40s again. Some clouds could move in for Christmas Eve day on Sunday. Temperatures in the mid-40s, and then the holiday Monday should be mainly cloudy, but warming to nearly 50. 34 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. The Supreme Court is declining to hear, at least for now, a major dispute about former President Donald Trump. This afternoon, the high court turned away a request from prosecutors to fast-track an appeal about whether Trump has immunity from federal prosecution. The dispute now heads to an appeals court in Washington, but it could return to the Supreme Court next year. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the case and joins me now. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Scott. So prosecutors had asked the Supreme Court to move with urgency on this immunity issue. Why didn't the court do that? 
The court didn't give any reason, and it did not say how many justices might have disagreed with the decision, so whatever happened behind closed doors will stay that way for now. Special counsel Jack Smith had been pushing the court to decide once and for all whether Trump is shielded from prosecution over January 6th. Lawyers for the former president says say there was no need for a rush to judgment. They said this is a major constitutional question and the courts should take their time with it. At least several justices agreed with Trump's position. So this is a short-term victory for Donald Trump. So what does that mean, though, for the federal election interference case against him? This immunity question is now in the hands of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and that court is moving pretty quickly. They've already set oral argument in the case for January 6th. Whatever that court decides, though, this issue is headed back to the Supreme Court before the election. The D.C. trial, which had been set to start on March 4th, will now be pushed back deeper into next year, closer to the convention and the heart of the presidential campaign. Right. Trump is is running for president, and we know the timeline of a presidential election. But there are three other criminal cases here that he's facing. What does this delay mean for them? It's unclear for now, Scott, but it could really upend the entire calendar for next year. Trump is fighting 91 charges across four different jurisdictions. If the D.C. trial date for the spring of 2024 slips, maybe the New York case or the Georgia case goes forward, or maybe none of them do before the election. And if Trump wins, his fate could be in his own hands. He could drop these federal cases and delay the state cases until after he leaves office in 2029. (laughs) And going back to to the earlier headlines from this week and all of this, the Supreme Court may get another case involving Trump on its docket. That is that case out of Colorado, where a court there ruled that Trump should be disqualified from the primary ballot. What's at stake there? Yeah, the group bringing this lawsuit is arguing Trump should not be eligible to be on the primary ballot because of his alleged role in inciting the insurrection on January 6th. The Colorado Supreme Court agreed, but Trump has promised to appeal to the Supreme Court, and he's going to stay on the ballot while the case proceeds on appeal. There have been a number of other challenges in different states that have been rejected, so the Supreme Court may need to weigh in here to clear up which state is right One of the key issues in play is whether Trump got enough due process in Colorado. And if this wasn't all enough to keep track of, there is another big legal question looming that could upend a bunch of January 6th cases, including Trump's, right? That's right. This is about whether actions on January 6th amount to obstruction of an official proceeding. Congress passed a law about that after a wave of accounting scandals. But some defendants argue that breaking into the Capitol is not the same as tampering with evidence like papers and documents. The Supreme Court is going to hear that case with a decision likely by the end of June. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Thank you, Kerry. My pleasure. And you can hear more about President Trump's legal issues and the 2024 election on the Trump's Trials podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Dozens of cargo ships are diverting all the way around Africa and avoiding the Suez Canal. That's because Houthi militants in Yemen have been attacking vessels passing through the Red Sea, which leads to the Suez Canal, all in response to Israel's offensive in Gaza. This week, the U.S. announced a naval task force in the Red Sea to safeguard the passage of ships. But the Houthis have vowed that they will not be deterred. NPR's Fatma Tanis explains why. 
At a conference this week in Sana'a, Yahya Sari, the spokesman for the Houthi army, spoke to a crowd of Yemenis. He said the same American bombs being poured on Gaza are the same American bombs that were poured on us in Yemen nine years ago, adding that they would not stop attacks until Israel stops the war. The Houthis are a tribal militant group allied with Iran. In 2014, they overthrew the Yemeni government and have fought a bloody civil war against a Saudi-led coalition that used U.S. planes and weapons for nearly a decade. Now the conflict is at a stalemate, and Ahmed Naji, the senior Yemen analyst for Crisis Group, says there are several domestic and regional issues at play. The Palestinian cause is one of the key pillars of the Houthi ideological narrative since the establishment of the movement. The Houthis are not exactly popular among most Yemenis. The civil war has caused immense suffering, killing hundreds of thousands. There's been hunger and disease. And while the Houthis are de facto governing parts of Yemen, including the capital Sana'a, they haven't been providing help or services to the people not even paying their salaries. Gaza war was to some extent a way out for them. They now tell people that, uh, look, we are at war, but this is a different war and you should be silent. So we cannot provide you with anything. But Naji says in a country as divided as Yemen, the Palestinian issue is a unifying concern across tribes and factions. So they need to act to show their people that they are the movement of actions, not the movement of words. The Houthis have launched drones and missiles at ships passing through the Red Sea. They even hijacked a vessel. They've also tried to attack the south of Israel and U.S. carrier ships in the region. Most of them have been blocked. Still, the Houthi army has been publishing propaganda videos and songs, strengthening their position beyond Yemen into the region where sympathy for Palestinians is strong. This week, the Houthi leadership immediately dismissed U.S. efforts to defend against their attack with the nine-country naval task force it's leading. But Gerald Firestein, the former U.S. ambassador to Yemen, says as the U.S. continues to protect international shipping, there are other priorities it will need to consider. The administration has been very cautious in the way that it's approached these challenges and tried to maintain defensive posture as opposed to being more aggressive in how it responds to these Houthi provocations. One issue is the U.S. does not want the war in Israel to spill over into the region. There's also the ongoing conflict in Yemen, where the stalemate has made way for peace talks. But if the Houthis continue to attack ships... They will, if they have to, turn to offensive measures, and that could undermine efforts to resolve the conflict, to end negotiations between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, and that would not be the solution that the U.S. wants. Analysts say Houthi attacks on ships will increase costs around the world and make food more expensive in Yemen, adding more suffering to what is already one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. The United Nations Security Council is calling for stepped-up aid deliveries to Gaza as humanitarian workers warn of famine. The council adopted a resolution after days of tough negotiations to avoid a U.S. veto. The U.S. says it wants to help the people of Gaza, but also thinks Israel has a right to continue to fight Hamas there. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
The ambassador of the United Arab Emirates visited the border between Egypt and Gaza last week, along with some other council diplomats. Ambassador Lana Nuseba says she met a boy the same age as her son, recovering from an Israeli airstrike. He told me he just wanted to go home and see his parents. And it was heartbreaking to hear from hospital staff that he had no idea that the strike that had wounded him had also killed every single member of his family. She drafted the resolution and spent days changing the text to avoid a U.S. veto. That meant not calling for a ceasefire, even though that's what she and many others want. Often, in diplomacy, the challenge is meeting the moment in the world we live in, not in the world that we want. And we will never tire in pushing for a full humanitarian ceasefire. The Biden administration vetoed previous U.N. calls for a ceasefire and was criticized around the world and in the U.S. This time, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield abstained in the vote, allowing the resolution to go through after what she called tough negotiations. She says she's still appalled that the council has not condemned Hamas for the October 7th attack on Israel, which started this latest round of violence. It took many days and many, many long nights of negotiating to get this right. But today, this council provided a glimmer of hope amongst a sea of unimaginable suffering. The resolution calls for urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access in Gaza and to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he still believes that a humanitarian ceasefire is needed now. He says famine is looming in Gaza and the hospital system is, in his words, on its knees. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world People who have seen everything tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. Andy says there's been no significant change in the way the war has been unfolding in Gaza. The U.S. has been pushing Israel to do more to protect civilians and move to more targeted operations against Hamas, but says there's a gap between what Israel says it's doing on that front and the reality on the ground. But the Biden administration calls this a war of Hamas's making. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here on this Friday afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the new movie Iron Claw, which follows the story of two brothers who are wrestling legends. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com.
The Dow dipped a small fraction today. S&P rose nearly two-tenths of a percent to notch its highest highest weekly win streak since 2017. The Nasdaq also rose about two-tenths of a percent. Pharmaceutical giant Bristol-Myers Squibb is buying Boston biotech Karuna Therapeutics. It's a $14 billion all-cash deal that was approved by the board of directors of both companies. Karuna was founded 14 years ago. It went public in 2019. Its lead drug is an antipsychotic designed to treat schizophrenia. This is WBUR. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Lauren Hollerin with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHollerin.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Not a bad winter we're having one day in. Clear skies into tonight, staying dry. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow should bring sunshine, inching to the mid-40s. Sunday, we could have overcast skies in the mid-40s again. Then Christmas Day, Monday, cloudy, dry, and milder, coming close to 50 degrees. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Neon with Ferrari. Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. The news about the U.S. economy keeps getting better. Today we learned that prices have actually fallen for the first time in more than three years and that Americans have continued to spend even with higher interest rates. To make sense of it all, NPR's David Gura joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what's this latest data say? Well, we've seen inflation slow recently, and today we learned that prices fell by 0.1% from October to November. As you mentioned, that is the first decline since April of 2020. This is according to data in what's called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or the PCE Index, which I know is a mouthful. It seems pretty (laughs) jargony, but it is the inflation gauge that matters the most to the Federal Reserve. It's this really broad measure of inflation. Okay. We've seen this disconnect between the economic data, which have been getting better, and how people are feeling about the economy. Surveys have shown that's starting to change. And what's notable in the data we got today is people have continued to spend. Americans are still buying stuff, even though interest rates have gone up and they've remained elevated north of 5%. We saw that in November, Elsa, people were still going out to dinner and they were still taking trips. Woohoo! Okay, all this sounds pretty good, right? It is. And it's remarkable when you reflect on how much has changed since the beginning of the year when inflation was still high, the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates to fight it, and there was this widespread fear that the Fed would not be able to win that fight without triggering a recession. So there was all this negative sentiment about the economy and its prospects, and Mark Desard reminds us this has also been a really tumultuous year for markets. Desard is the chief investment strategist in the asset management group at the firm PNC. You know, investors have lived through an entire lifetime in 2023 um, from banking failures, rate hikes, multiple labor strikes, the geopolitics, debt downgrades, 
possible near shutdowns. It's a laundry list, but we are now in a very different place, and that conversation has shifted. There's a lot less talk of a potential recession and a lot more talk, Elsa, about the Fed pulling off this so-called soft landing. There is more optimism they'll be able to get inflation down to their 2% target without a massive economic downturn. Okay, so what led to this shift? Well, a key moment for the economy and for markets was last week when the Fed wrapped up its final meeting of the year. Policymakers did not raise interest rates. That was widely expected. But what was a surprise was how hopeful the Fed sounded about the economy, a kind of hopefulness from the Fed that we have not seen in a while. (laughs) Policymakers shared economic projections for 2024, and they said they anticipate cutting interest rates three times in the new year. That's a real change of tack. Of course, if the Fed does that, brings interest rates down, well, borrowing would get less expensive and that would be a big boost for the overall economy. So I'm curious, like, how has Wall Street reacted so far? Um, Wall Street has really embraced the Fed's hopefulness about the economy (laughs) and investors are cheering on the Fed, hoping that policymakers will lower interest rates soon in the new year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has been setting records recently and the S&P 500, which includes 500 of the biggest and the best-known companies in the world, is also close to a new record high. It's up almost 24% this year. Looking ahead to 2024, we are seeing really optimistic forecasts. This rally will continue. Professional investors are predicting we're going to see more good gains. Of course, there are no guarantees, but there is this growing sense a soft landing is likely to happen, Elsa. And Wall Street, like the economy, is ending the year in a very good place. Nice. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thanks, Elsa. In Puerto Rico, a beloved holiday tradition is the paranda. During the Christmas season, a group of your friends and family can show up at your front door at any time for an impromptu musical party. Though it's an old tradition, it's been receding. But in one mountain town, young people are keeping it alive. NPR's Adrian Florido reports. The bright pink cultural center in the small town of Morovis in Puerto Rico's central mountains has for years been teaching children and adults the instrument often most closely associated with Puerto Rico's Christmas. Folk guitar known as the Cuatro. 11-year-old Pencel Perez Salgado is getting in a little last-minute practice because today is the course's culmination. And we're going to go do a neighborhood paranda, Perez says. In a paranda, a crowd armed with musical instruments shows up unannounced at the doorstep of friends or family. It's not caroling, more like a party. Joe Torres is a cuatro teacher here. El que lo oye, pues, se pone alegre y ven niños tocando, le lleva más alegría. When you get a parranda, you just get happy, he says. And if it's kids playing, even happier. The key, his co-teacher Jose Rivera Marrero says, is the element of surprise. Porque eso es la parranda, llegar de sorpresa. The parranda has been in decline in Puerto Rico. One reason is it's a rural tradition, but many towns have lost their young people to the island's economic crisis. Left behind are older residents who often struggle with loneliness. That, Torres says, is the reason for today's parranda, to surprise three older people who've been having a hard time. Es un propósito hasta cierto punto bonito porque le llamamos un ratito, que se alegren. It's a lovely thing, he says, because even for just a little while, they can forget their pain and their day-to-day problems. The musicians load up into a van. Their parents follow in a line of cars to one of Morovis' outer neighborhoods. They tune up their cuatros and walk up to the first house. One, two, three, 
Greetings, greetings, they sing. I'm here to greet you. A frail older woman emerges from her front door, her lower lip quivering with emotion. Her name is Sonia Claudia, and she's a retired nurse who's been battling cancer and other diseases. I ask if she's surprised. ¿Le sorprendió esto? Sumamente sorprendida, sí, claro que sí. Of course, she says. My heart is pounding, my stomach is jumping, my legs are quivering. It's beautiful, it's a pleasure. And I feel, truly, like I have good health. Her daughter brings out a tray of snacks before the musicians head up the hill to their next house. This house belongs to Pucha Rivera. She says Christmas has been sad since the recent death of her oldest son. Las Navidades pasadas y esta pues son un poquito triste para mí, pero me alegro mucho de haberlos recibido. But she thanks the musicians for their beautiful gift and says she wishes more children would learn to play. 16-year-old Jeremy Santos Rivera says he loves putting a smile on people's faces. Yes, his town has lost a lot of young people, but not all of them. Many of those still here, he says, are keeping Puerto Rico's traditions alive. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Morovis, Puerto Rico. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Globe Santa has been around for nearly seven decades, and it's still making the holidays happier for children in need in Massachusetts. We'll speak with Globe Santa editor about the letters that Santa receives and what they reveal. That's coming up in about five minutes on WBUR. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com and the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day. Open Tuesday through Sunday. harvardartmuseums.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. I'm, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The U.S. Supreme Court has denied a request from special counsel Jack Smith to fast-track a review of whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for his bid to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The decision could delay his trial, which is scheduled for March 4th. 
Some social media users are calling for violence after hearing the Colorado State Supreme Court disqualified Trump from the state's primary ballot. NPR's Odette Youssef has more. These calls mirror spikes in violent online rhetoric that have followed other events adversely impacting Trump. Still, extremism researchers say it's important to stay vigilant. Daniel J. Jones is with a nonpartisan nonprofit, Advanced Democracy. We're seeing the mainstreaming of this extremism and this, this encouragement of violence on right and right-wing media. So far, Jones and others monitoring the chatter say they have not seen indications of an imminent or credible threat. But they say vigilance is warranted because similar upticks in online rhetoric have been linked to past violence. They point to the example of a man who attacked an FBI field office in Cincinnati following the search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Odette Youssef, NPR News. The United Nations Security Council has adopted a resolution calling for additional humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip, but stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. According to the World Food Program, widespread famine looms. More than half a million people, a quarter of the population, are facing what experts classify as catastrophic levels of hunger. Meanwhile, Israeli forces say they're planning to expand their ground offensive with a new push into central Gaza. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cannabis Commission Chair Shannon O'Brien has been denied her appeal for a public hearing today. This comes amid her battle with the state treasurer who suspended O'Brien in September. WBUR's Irina Machavariani reports on the latest in the case. O'Brien was seeking an open hearing with an independent official to contest the treasurer's decision and clear her name. But the judge is allowing Treasurer Deborah Goldberg to schedule the hearing and keep it behind closed doors. The hearing would determine O'Brien's future with the Cannabis Control Commission. In a statement, O'Brien called the judge's ruling an error and said she's considering an appeal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majawadiani. Whole Foods did not break the law when it disciplined employees at a Cambridge location for wearing clothing with the words Black Lives Matter. A judge for the National Labor Relations Board ruled in favor of the grocery chain this week. Employees at four stores sued in 2020, saying they were unfairly disciplined over Whole Foods' dress code policy. The employees can appeal the decision. The State Department of Transportation is sharing some tips as people hit the roads for the long holiday weekend. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the agency plans to pause construction on the Sumner Tunnel near Logan Airport to help out with traffic. There will be congestion at times. Holiday schedules are in play and travel will be impacted, so please take this into consideration. And State Police Lieutenant Eric Bernstein recommends people drive responsibly this season. The State Police will be deploying saturation patrols and sobriety checkpoints across the state to remind people to drive sober or get pulled over. These officers will stop drivers who are driving dangerously, they say. Traffic company Inrix expects tomorrow and next Thursday, December 28th, to be the busiest travel days on the roads. Glacier Gobblers, Sleetwood Mac, and Snowbewan Kenobi. These are just a few of this year's winning names of the state's Name a Snowplow contest. The names are selected by the mass transportation officials from entries submitted by local elementary and middle school students. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. 
In the forecast overnight tonight, clear skies should continue. Temperatures down around 24 degrees. For tomorrow, should have sunshine, some fair weather clouds in, rising to the mid-40s. And then Sunday could be a cloudier day, still in the 40s. Some of the clouds could hang out for Christmas Day on Monday, approaching 50 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For years, the brothers of the Von Erich family were the kings of wrestling. Kevin Von Erich, who has long since retired, recently spoke with a local news station in Dallas. I wrestled all that time ago, and they liked me then. But by now, I think it's they identify with the suffering and the losing loved ones and, and that kind of crisis, that uh, the failure to a man, you know, but the spirit to keep coming back. Because part of the Von Erich family's story is that almost all of the brothers died at a young age. In the new movie, The Iron Claw, Zac Efron plays Kevin, his body completely transformed for the role with muscles so hyperinflated he looks like the Incredible Hulk. In this scene, he's speaking to one of his brothers. I got pretty angry. Not at you, just at the whole situation. thing is, I didn't even really want it that bad. I just love being out there with you guys. It's the only thing that matters to me. Sean Durkin wrote and directed the film. When I talked with Sean and Zach, Sean told me he scripted out long wrestling sequences, then worked with real pro wrestler Chavo Guerrero Jr. to choreograph and bring them to life. He would say, oh, it'd be better if you do this, or like, you know, Zach is particularly good at this move, so let's throw this in instead of that move, you know? What move is Zach particularly good at, if I may ask? Uh, well, a lot of them, it turns out, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> okay, but what's your signature move, Zach? I just have to ask. Usually the things that Kevin did a lot were uh, double drop kicks. Or the flying crossbody, flying off the top rope was a big thing. Flying crossbody, yeah. How did it feel to discover that you were good at that? <laughs> oh, man. You know what? Honestly, I was kind of nervous about it. You know, the, the math's not really a mat. It's a plywood with, uh, you know, like rebar sort of underneath it and just a cross. And so there's sections you that are you know, like landing on concrete almost. It's also about a 15-foot drop or a 12-foot drop to the floor from the top rope, you know, never mind the mat. So it's, it's pretty dangerous. Yeah. And you were doing these sequences over and over and over in the course of a day to get, like, multiple shots, multiple angles. Yeah, yeah we were. It, and that was after doing a, a 10 or 15-minute wrestling sequence. You know, you're tired the first time, but 20 takes later, um, it takes it out of you, man. <laughs> There's a scene where your character, Zach, is on a date with a woman who had become his wife, and and they get in a conversation about whether wrestling is real or fake. All right. Not fake. Um, Prearranged? Written? Look, 
you move up in any industry based on your performances, right? Mm-hmm. So a belt, like my Texas title, it's really just a job promotion. And the promoters keep you moving up if you do well. And if you reach the top, you become world champ as a reward because you're the best based on your ability and on how the crowd responds to you. I saw that scene and thought, oh, they could be talking about movie making. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I, I felt very passionately about portraying is, you know, this notion that wrestling is dismissed because it's prearranged is something I really wanted to dive into because it's, you know, I compare it to a play, right? A play is written, it is decided, it is drama, it's a story. An actor knows their lines, they know they're blocking, they go out and do it. But it's not about the execution of the story, it's about there's something in the performance of an actor that speaks to an audience. That's the thing that makes the actor great or the play great is how it makes the audience feel. And I think it's very similar in wrestling where great wrestlers, it's not always about technicality or if you win or if you lose, it's about how you make the audience feel yeah. when you win or when you lose. And that's, that's the performance element that sets great wrestlers apart. So if we could talk thematically for a minute, to me, this movie seems partly to be a morality tale about the poison that comes from combining toxic masculinity and show business. Mm -hmm. And as two men who work in Hollywood, <laughs> right? how do you identify with that? Being in entertainment as a young man, I think there was a lot that I could relate to with what the brothers go through, you know, in that. it's I definitely wasn't as extreme, but I think it manifested itself in different ways. And Is there a story from your own life you can tell us that when you were playing a scene in this film, you thought, oh, that kind of corresponds to or parallels with this thing that I experienced? There's some of the moments in the locker room where the show's over, you know, you've just come out of the crowd and the chaos of a wrestling match, and it's very high energy. And then sort of the solitude and uh, the quiet in the locker room where you're just alone. And I can perhaps compare that to, you know, what it feels like after a, maybe a, a movie premiere when, when I was younger yeah. or something like that. The highs and the lows. Yeah, yeah. All through this movie, the father Fritz, played by Holt McAllany, believes he can protect his boys by teaching them to be tougher and stronger than anyone else. Now we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike, but the rankings can always change. Everyone can work their way up or down. Just brutal and so so brutal it's almost funny as he's speaking to his boys there. But over the course of the movie, we learn that toughness is not enough to protect them. So if one lesson of the film is that being strong won't save you, what will? <laughs> uh, being in touch with your emotions and open about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's a journey of for Kevin on, on how he, uh, through finding expression and 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 being in touch with how he was feeling is really a reason he he survives i mean so much of that old school mentality of you know there's a scene at a funeral fritz says nobody cries you know i don't want to see any tears and um yeah take off your sunglasses yeah and it's and it's that sort of mentality it's about an absence of grief and when you don't grieve you can't truly move past it. And that's the real curse here, that they, they don't grieve. And so these things hang around and they eat at them. And um, I think Kevin goes on a journey to find out how to express and how to do things differently with his own kids and um, how to find those emotions. 
Zach, I was watching an interview with the real life Kevin Von Erich, where he said he has learned more in life from losing than from winning. And you, of course, were a teen heartthrob on the Disney Channel. You've grown up in the spotlight and in the tabloids and faced challenges that have played out in the public eye. And also, you just got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Congratulations on <laughs> Thank that. You. Thank you. So how do you relate to the idea that we can learn more from our setbacks than from our triumphs? There's something fascinating and attractive to me about extending and and really pushing myself to try new things and never never really getting too comfortable with uh, what I'm doing. And I think part of that is undertaking things you're maybe not quite confident you could achieve, trying something, uh, you know, that it puts you in a vulnerable position, uh, like wrestling, something like that. Um, it doesn't always work out, man. It doesn't always work out. And that's why this one, the Iron Claw, is is specifically near and dear to me. So it, it, I guess it made me really appreciate where I'm at now and extremely grateful, you know, for, for this experience. Zach Efron and Sean Durkin, star and director of the new movie, The Iron Claw. It's out now in theaters. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Cheers, man. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This holiday season, some 30,000 children in Massachusetts will be guaranteed a present when they otherwise might have had nothing. The presents are from Globe Santa, otherwise known as the Boston Globe Foundation. Globe Santa has been delivering boxes of toys and books to kids in need every Christmas since 1956. The project is non-denominational and is paid for by donations. Here's how it works. A child or family member handwrites a letter to Globe Santa to say why they need help. The letters get vetted, and some of them reach the desk of Globe Santa editor Linda Matchin. Her job is to write a newspaper story that's based on the letters. Matchin says the people writing the letters paint a vivid picture of some of the toughest issues in the headlines. You can see the pain in their writing. You can see that they can maybe they can barely write. You can see that they're extraordinarily well-educated and articulate and expressive, you can see that these are all kinds of people who belie the common misperception that these are just lazy people who are choosing not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Give us an example of those letters that have arrived this year. Well, this year, we're seeing a lot of letters from Ukrainian families who have come here, perhaps leaving their husband behind to fight in Ukraine. But They've managed to come here with a small child, and they write letters about how traumatized their children are, how they still can't sleep at night because they're afraid of bombs. And you brought in one of them. Uh, this one says, Our family came to the USA from Ukraine a year ago because of the war in our country. We've had a challenging year, but my children have shown great fortitude and adaptability. And then she goes on to say, I would like to ask the foundation to help us create an atmosphere of magic for my children and prolong their faith in Santa Claus and miracles as long as possible. The plight of refugees, people who are new to this country, is one thing. You deal with other issues very much in the news as well, as displayed in the letters you get. Tell us about some others. There was one little boy I remember who wrote this beautiful letter saying, Globe Santa, I'm trying really hard to be good because... I'm staying with an aunt and uncle, and I don't want them to throw us out. They often feel that they're just on the edge, and they are. I mean, one thing that Globe Santa has taught me is that countless people of all income levels are just one diagnosis 
one job lost due to COVID, uh, one accident away from financial ruin. I've listened to all sorts of stories. I just finished one in which the children suffered from blindness. And so what happens in these cases is that the parents can't both work. One parent has to be able to stay home with the child just to take them to medical appointments, but also to advocate for them. And that results in the family income taking a huge nosedive. And again, they just need help to get through the holidays. One of the other major issues in the region, of course, is opiate addiction and substance use disorder. Do you find many letters that come in having to do with those issues? I see a lot of letters that come in dealing with substance abuse, and very often they come in from the guardians or the grandparents of the children, or in several cases, this really astonished me this year, the great-grandparents. There was one case in which a woman who was a mother was struggling, and the grandmother wrote me that she'd been murdered. And the case was still unsolved. And, you know, I looked it up, and it was a recognizable case. You know, that's sort of when you read the paper, that's where you think the story ends. But that's not where the story ends. There are children who are struggling, who just want to be like other children. And that's kind of where Globe Santa comes in. You know, people often say to us, why do you give them toys? I mean, those are not, as one writer put it to me in in a letter, those are not exactly life's necessities. But if you're a child and you remember back to being a child, it is a necessity. You just want to feel like other kids. Even I remember going back to school after Christmas and everybody saying, well, what did you get? Tell me what you got. And imagine if you got nothing. It just can make a child feel really worthless. And this gives them a little bit of dignity. I guess another thing I should say is, you know, we often hear from people who are adults now who were Globe Santa kids when they were little. Mm. I just Meaning read, that they received from Globe Santa. They received toys from Globe Santa. One person, I was reading this letter today, actually, said, you know what? We got dolls and we got, you know, a pretend pinball machine and we got trucks and they were all very cool. But it didn't really matter what we got. What the gift told us was that somebody remembered us. And that made a huge difference to us. Linda Matchin, uh, thank you for telling us about your work with Globe Santa and how nice to know that it's making such a difference for people. Thank you for having me. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. A clear, dry evening taking us into the holiday weekend. Tonight should be down around 24. Sunshine tomorrow in the mid-40s. Staying in the 40s for Sunday and for Monday as well. Could be cloudy both days. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Cambridge Naturals, supporting your health this sniffle season with specialists who can suggest their favorite remedies in Porter Square, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org.
and thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. So if you are thinking of getting an electric vehicle in the new year, here is some news you can use. The federal tax credit for EVs, up to $7,500, is going to get easier to access in 2024. But, 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 there is a catch. And Piers Camila Dominoski, who follows the EV industry closely, is here to explain that catch. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so first just tell us why EV tax credits are so very hot right now. All right. Two words for the big change that's coming. Uh-huh. Instant rebate. Ooh. So the way tax credits normally work, you pay for something and then wait for months. And when you file your taxes next, you get to owe less money than usual. Okay. But starting on January 1st, when you buy an EV, you'll get a new option to take that credit as cash in hand up front. Cha-ching. Allison Flores from H&R Block says it's probably not literally going to be an envelope of cash. But essentially, that dealer will advance you the credit. And it's probably going to reduce your loan or your finance agreement or be a down payment or something like that. And then the IRS will pay the dealer back. So it's like the IRS gave you that credit up front. (laughs) The IRS pays me. When does that ever happen? Okay, (laughs) why is this such a big deal? First, it's a lot faster, right? You don't have to wait until the next year. It also means buyers will finance a smaller sum of money, right? With interest rates pretty high right now, there's a huge difference between having to borrow all that money and get it back later versus borrowing less up front. And there's a third thing that's really important, which is it means that you can get the credit even if you don't owe much in taxes. Up until now, you needed to owe $7,500 to get $7,500. And that meant that there was basically a minimum income required to use this tax credit. And a lot of people don't pay that much in taxes. And now that doesn't matter. More people might be able to use the benefit even if they owe very little or nothing. Hmm. Okay, so this sounds pretty cool, but we did mention there's a catch. What's what's the bad news here? Fewer vehicles look like they'll qualify next year. So to qualify for the credit, vehicles have to be under a price cap, they have to be made in North America, and they also have to meet these increasingly strict requirements about where the batteries come from. And that's because these tax credits, the Biden administration is trying to address climate change. They are also trying to bring an entire battery supply chain to the U.S. in the name of jobs and reducing supply chain issues. So all of those motivations together make this pretty complicated. Some manufacturers actually still haven't figured out yet whether they'll qualify for these credits in less than two weeks. And of course, all of the other requirements still apply. So the buyer has to be under an income cap, $300,000 for a couple filing jointly, $150,000 for single filers. That is adjusted gross income, which can be confusing. We'll have an article on NPR.org breaking (laughs) down all the requirements. Okay. Well, what about people who don't qualify or, or who can't afford a new EV right now? Yeah, if you're over the income cap or you want a vehicle that's not on the list, you might consider leasing. That's a different tax credit, which many companies have been passing along as an upfront discount already. Uh, Income caps, made in America requirements, those things don't apply to leased vehicles. 
And if new EVs are too expensive, even with the rebate, you should know that there is a used EV tax credit. Hmm. It's smaller, up to $4,000, and it has a lower income cap and a lower price cap. But again, it doesn't matter where the battery or the vehicle was made, and you will also be able to get that as an instant rebate starting next year. Not bad. That is NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you. It is election season in Taiwan, and that also means, like here in the U.S., a rise in disinformation. Some of the propaganda and conspiracy theories can be directly traced back to China, which wants more control over Taiwan. One of their favorite platforms is a Taiwanese online discussion forum called PTT. To figure out why, NPR's Emily Fang went to visit the tech guru who founded it. Like many things on the internet, Taiwan's PTT was born out of idealism. We should have a system like embrace open source and embrace freedom of speech. This is Ethan Tu, PTT's founder. He started the platform in 1995 as a college student, and to its one and a half million registered users, he's often called PTT's creation god. And as such, he sets the rules for PTT a forum where people can post news and comments and long discussion threads. For any individual, you are equal. You cannot buy ads to promote what you are saying, and you cannot re-rank your content. Like many early adopters of the World Wide Web, he believes in radical free expression, creating a marketplace of ideas moderated only by the users themselves. This is in part what's made PTT a go-to site for journalists in Taiwan to get tips, It also makes it a great place to amplify false narratives, says Summer Chen, the editor of nonprofit Taiwan Fact Check Center. Those aiming to spread disinformation want to attract journalists and have them disseminate the information further. And since 2022, Chen says exploiting Taiwanese media to spread false information is on the rise. For example, this year, a hacked PTT account posted faked documents showing Taiwan's vice president giving away millions of dollars in aid to Paraguay. False claims news websites picked up. Other dominant false narratives often play up food safety and vaccine concerns. Another topic is definitely war, the possibility of a conflict in our region across the Taiwan Strait. That's Zhi Haoyou, co-director at the research group Taiwan Information Environment Research Center. He says it's becoming harder to pinpoint when Chinese state actors are planting disinformation, because sometimes Taiwanese outlets are spreading the information on their own. And our data analysis shows that uh, about half of these narratives are actually domestic, uh, while the other half comes from the PRC. The PRC, as in China. The information is part of an effort to shape voter perceptions in Taiwan. So all these sort of narratives are amplifying chaos and amplifying fear, which is not very productive if you want a a constructive public debate on policies, on national direction. And this is the question at the heart of combating disinformation. Do you keep platforms completely open and let people decide for themselves what is true and worth reading? Or do you increase moderation and ask for real name registration? PTT's founder, Ethan Du, is adamantly against this approach. He worries doing so gives individual platforms too much power over speech. Because the content moderation now will become too powerful, which means the system operator can control the opinion of the society. That should 
should not be allowed at PDT. He acknowledges disinformation is a growing problem and becoming more sophisticated. But Taiwan is a democracy, he says. The people should decide. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Federal agents encountered some two and a half million migrants at the southern border this year. The issues front and center in the Republican presidential campaigns. They're promising to increase deportations, expand detention, and close the border. What President Biden has been doing coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The UN Security Council votes to speed up the delivery of aid to Gaza. The U.S. abstains. The Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem says two women who were taking shelter at Holy Family Parish in Gaza were killed by Israel's military last week. And this caused panic uh, in the hearts of everyone because they said if we walk in the courtyard, we will be killed. Israel says it was not responsible. And workers at Arlington National Cemetery today are finishing removing a monument to Confederate soldiers. It's 501. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Supreme Court is declining to fast-track an appeal about whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the court turned aside a plea from special counsel Jack Smith with no comment. Prosecutors had urged the high court to expedite an issue at the heart of American democracy. Does the former president enjoy a lifetime shield from prosecution for actions he took while in the White House? At stake is the fate of Donald Trump's federal election interference trial, which had been set for March 2024. The action now turns to the appeals court in Washington, D.C., which will hear arguments early in the new year. The case could make its way back to the Supreme Court soon, but it's not clear how long the D.C. trial might be delayed or whether it will happen before the presidential election. Kerry Johnson, NPR News. After days of wrangling over the text, the U.N. Security Council's adopted a resolution expressing deep concerns about the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza and calling for urgent steps to immediately allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports the resolution was watered down to get the U.S. on board. The vote was 13 to 0. The U.S. and Russia abstained after days of debate over the language in the resolution. This was tough, but we got there. 
That's U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who says she still doesn't understand why the council won't condemn the Hamas attack that set off this latest conflict. The U.S. vetoed previous resolutions because of that and because they called for ceasefires. This one talks about the need to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities and for humanitarian pauses until then. It urges more aid routes into Gaza at a time when U.N. officials are warning of famine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The recent influx of migrants at the Texas-Mexico border is causing hours-long wait times at one port of entry. Texas Public Radio's Marianne Navarro has more. U.S. Customs and Border Protection suspended operations at international railway crossings in Eagle Pass and El Paso this week. In Eagle Pass, CBP previously suspended vehicle processing at International Bridge 1 in order to shift personnel to assist Border Patrol. Only one lane remains open on Bridge 2. Republican San Antonio Congressman Tony Gonzalez said at a press conference this week that the holdup is madness. I spoke with a woman that had been waiting in line for 15 hours. So madness. And when I asked her, you know, why would you wait in line for 15 hours? She said, today's my daughter's birthday and I'm going to visit my daughter. CBP has reported a minimum wait time of five hours for passenger vehicles today. I'm Marian Navarro in San Antonio. Stocks wobbled to a mix close today. The Dow lost 18 points. The Nasdaq closed up 29 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Groups working to resettle newly arrived migrants to Massachusetts say the state must shift its approach to emergency shelter system. This week, state officials announced they would consolidate shelter spaces. That leaves some families unsure of where they might end up. Jeff Thielman is president of the resettlement agency, the International Institute of New England. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston today the state should focus on placing families in apartments. We're not going to get federal money for it, unfortunately. We want state money to copy the resettlement model and use it to settle families in apartments. We'd rather see state money going to uh, landlords in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts than uh, folks who are running uh, hotels or hotel chains. There are now more than 300 families on the state shelter wait list. The MBTA has announced additional shutdowns on the Green Line in the new year. Closures are set for portions of the B, C, D, and E branches for more than 20 days in January. Shuttle bus and Orange Line service will replace most impacted services. This week, state transit officials cheered the reopening of the Green Line D branch and the removal of almost all slow zones on the branch. Arts Boston is offering special discounts on holiday performances this month. The nonprofit is trying to drum up support for local arts groups that are recovering from the pandemic. Here's WBUR's Amelia Mason. Audiences for regional productions are still 20 to 30 percent lower than they were before the pandemic, and government aid for the arts has dried up. Arts Boston Executive Director Catherine Peterson says the success of holiday performances is critical for local arts organizations, especially now. They're the bread and butter of an organization's season in terms of having popular programming that a lot of people want to attend. And so it can help support the rest of the programming and the rest of an organization's running for the rest of the year. Arts Boston's website is offering discounts of up to 50% on select holiday shows. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. The Bay State's unemployment rate remains just below 3%. The number of people out of work last month ticked up one-tenth of a point from October to 2.9%. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates the state gained more than 3,000 jobs in November. The biggest sectors for growth were hospitality, finance, 
and government. 33 degrees now in the Boston area. Look for a cold night again tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow could be the brightest day of the weekend. Sunny skies, highs in the mid-40s again. Some clouds move in for Christmas Eve day, Sunday. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Then the holiday Monday should be mainly cloudy, but warming to nearly 50. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This year, the U.S. encountered a record number of migrants at the southern border, 2.5 million people. That has strained many resources across the country, and it's already pushed immigration front and center in the upcoming presidential election. Jasmine Garst is NPR's immigration correspondent, and she's here to recap this year and to look ahead for us. Hey, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. So, okay, before we look ahead, let's look behind a little. What has been driving this record number of people showing up at the southern border? So there's been a historic rise in the number of displaced people around the world. I spent so much of this last year talking to migrants from all walks of life. A Venezuelan pharmacist sleeping in line to get into a shelter in New York City, a Kurdish English teacher crossing the California border, Mm. a Russian doctor who I met in Tijuana. He was in line to request asylum. His sons were entering the age of military service. And this is what he kept saying to me. Me. Russia, it's so difficult. Mm. I can't describe it. It's so difficult for me. Catastrophe. Catastrophe, catastrophe. And I think it's an apt description for the situation of migrants at the border. Well, how has the Biden administration been responding to the situation? Biden's policy has been twofold. On the one hand, punish migrants who cross the border undocumented by making it more difficult to get asylum, which is controversial because a person fleeing danger might not have time to fill out an application to enter the U.S. He also has made more pathways for migrants to enter legally into the U.S., and he's expanded humanitarian parole and temporary protected status. Republicans say this all signals that the door is wide open for immigrants and that it's been a mess. Well, I mean, Republicans criticizing the Biden administration for its immigration policies isn't a surprise. But I know that there were some responses from Republican governors this year that were quite unprecedented, right? Can you talk about those? Absolutely. So starting in 2022, Republicans like Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis started busing migrants to New York, Boston, Chicago, and they kept doing that this year. New York alone has received over 150,000 migrants and said it's at capacity and started putting people out of shelters, which is shaping up to be a crisis of its own. So as we enter the election year, Republican presidential candidates are pointing to those cities as examples of Biden's bad immigration policy. Here's former President Donald Trump promising widespread deportations. And following the model of President Eisenhower, we will use all necessary federal, state, local, and military resources to begin the largest domestic deportation effort in American history. Now, pretty much every single Republican candidate is saying they want to end birthright citizenship, meaning if an undocumented immigrant has a child in the U.S., that child cannot be a citizen. 
Legal scholars have pointed out that this would be unconstitutional. In fact, a lot of what is being promised on the campaign trails would probably be challenged in courts. But the rhetoric has been totally unprecedented. I mean, former President Donald Trump talking about immigrants, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis talking about sending military into Mexico. I mean, but meanwhile, recent polls are showing President Biden lagging behind former President Trump. So how has Biden been addressing any criticisms about his immigration policies? Well, the Biden administration has definitely felt the pressure, but probably the biggest sign of a shift is the ongoing negotiations in Congress. Recently, Biden requested aid for Ukraine and Israel, and Republicans are demanding that in exchange, applying for and receiving asylum at the border be more difficult and that there be more deportations. And it's significant that the White House appears willing to negotiate, which would mean a huge shift in the nation's asylum policy. Hmm. So we're going to have to see what happens when Congress returns in January. That is NPR's Jasmine Gartz. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you for having me. And now an incident that highlights the dangers to the tiny Palestinian Christian community in Gaza. The Latin Patriarchate in Jerusalem says Israeli troops killed two women and wounded seven others at Holy Family Parish. Israel denies this. Holy Family is one of just two churches in Gaza. Both are crowded with people seeking shelter. NPR's Jason DeRose reports from Tel Aviv. Last Saturday afternoon in Jerusalem, Bishop William Shomali received a barrage of text messages from Gaza describing a gruesome scene at Holy Family Parish. 70-year-old Nahida Khalil Anton and her 50-year-old daughter, Samar Kamal Anton, were shot and killed while walking between buildings. So the mother fell down and her daughter came to help her. And the daughter also was uh, killed by the same uh, sniper. About 500 Palestinian Christians as well as some Muslims are sheltering at the church compound. And this caused panic uh, in the hearts of everyone because they said, if we walk in the courtyard, we will be killed. The shootings even got the attention of Pope Francis, who spoke out, saying there are no terrorists at Holy Family, but rather children, sick and disabled people, and nuns. He called the shootings terrorism, though he didn't name anyone as responsible. The Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem says Israeli snipers killed the women, but it's not been able to explain how it knows that, other than to say the church has lived in peace with Hamas for decades. Israel says it was not responsible. Our forces regard any such claims in utmost seriousness, because we're talking about holy places here. Tal Henrik is a spokesperson for the Israeli prime minister's office. We do not target civilians. Full stop here. We don't want to see civilians being caught in the crossfire, and we're doing the utmost efforts to guarantee that this doesn't happen. But the Israeli military says there was fighting near the church, and Gaza health officials say Israeli attacks have killed thousands of women and children. My immediate family and my extended family, they're all in the Holy Family Catholic Church, hiding, sheltering from the bombs. Fifi Saba was raised in Gaza but now lives in the D.C. area. She says constant worry is leaving her sleepless, stressed, and unspeakably sad. We hear from them once every few days, if we're lucky. And most of the time, it's either a text message or a phone call, but that phone call is like half a minute. If we're not able to get through the phone, 
we get a message literally saying we're alive and that's it. Saba left home nearly two decades ago and says the violence has left her heart sick. It really hurts me to know that my people are not even able to celebrate Christmas. I'm not celebrating Christmas. I am not. I can't. This war is not God-made. It is hand-made. Again, Bishop William Shomali. The Lord didn't give an order to Hamas to attack on the 7th of October, and they didn't give an order to Israelis to have a disproportionate answer. We condemn the action and the reaction, both of them. Only about a 1,000 Christians live in Gaza. Those who aren't taking refuge at Holy Family are sheltering at St. Porphyrius Orthodox Church, which was badly damaged by Israeli airstrikes in October. Shomali fears this war could mean the total destruction of the tiny Christian community in Gaza. It's a bleak thought as he sits down to write the sermon he'll deliver at midnight mass. We don't have peace with God if we don't have peace with my brother or sister or even my enemy. So reconciliation is a must to be preached on Christmas Day. A gift, he hopes, arrives in time for those seeking refuge at Holy Family Parish. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Workers at Arlington National Cemetery will finish removing a monument to Confederate soldiers from the grounds today. And that has drawn mixed reactions, as NPR's Alana Wise reports. The 30-foot-tall bronze memorial has been in place since 1914, commemorating Confederate soldiers of the Civil War. The removal comes after years of debate on whether Confederate statues should be displayed in public spaces. It is a part of history, not a good part of history, but you can't erase the past. That was Grace Townsend, an Alabama resident who was visiting the cemetery with her fiancé. She said she can see both sides of the debate, keeping the monuments around to preserve history, but also how some people would want to see them removed. I don't think they should be completely destroyed. I think they should be put somewhere. The plan to remove the memorial began in 2021, when Congress called on the Defense Department to remove commemorations of the Confederacy from its properties. The decision sparked backlash from some who argued that removing these memorials erases key parts of American history. Brad Dollar agrees with that point of view. I think it is an important part of our history. Um, I know it's um, it's a little polarizing. There's people on both sides of the of the topic, but I think it's important that we remember where we were at one time and where we've come since. And so I think we're at risk of losing sight of that if we if we remove some of those things. Dollar is a retired Marine. He says that the cemetery as a whole, including any dedications to Confederate soldiers, should be a sobering reminder to visitors about lives lost to war. It's that whole cliche of history, you know, doomed to repeat itself um, if we don't remember the past. The statue was designed by Moses Ezekiel, who was himself a soldier of the Confederacy. It depicts 32 life-sized figures, including a man following his enslaver into battle. Stephen Pressman is working on a documentary about the man who designed the memorial. To quote somebody in my film, Ezekiel is somebody whose time has passed. And I would say that accurately describes the sculpture here at Arlington. Pressman says that the sculpture is ultimately a misrepresentation of slavery and the Civil War. And for that reason, he supports its removal. After its removal from cemetery grounds, the monument will be restationed at the New Market Battlefield State Historical Park in Virginia. Alana Wise, NPR News, Arlington, Virginia.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us on this Friday evening. Coming up in about 20 minutes, our brains have a remarkable ability to take a mix of sounds and translate them into meaning. We'll hear how a team of scientists monitored the brain activity of people as they listen to English sentences. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory for students 13 through 18. Priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. The Dow dipped a small fraction today. S&P rose nearly two-tenths of a percent to notch its longest weekly winning streak since 2017. The Nasdaq also rose about two-tenths of a percent. A Boston-based real estate investment firm is looking to acquire hotels and other hospitality properties and make them more sustainable. The Boston Globe reports Atlantic Equity Partners is looking to raise at least $150 million for the effort. It's targeting properties that have 80 to 120 rooms. The firm has already bought three hotels and resorts in New Hampshire and on Long Island in New York. The forecast is ahead. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to wbur.org. Should be dry and cold overnight tonight. Temperatures about the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny, inching up to the mid-40s. And then staying in the 40s for Sunday and Christmas Day Monday. As of now, it looks like we could have clouds around both days. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. 2023 is the hottest year ever recorded on Earth. How does that make you feel? Scared? Anxious? Guilty? Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk says scientists feel the same way and have some advice for how to deal with those feelings. Scientists don't usually get asked about their feelings. So 2023 is the hottest year on record. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Um, Stephanie Bova is a climate scientist at San Diego State University. The first feeling that came to mind for her was concern. Nervous and concerned about where we're continuing to head. But there are other feelings, too. Frustration, absolutely. Um, Anger sometimes. Because, she says, we know so much about what's causing the planet to heat up greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. Seeing temperature records keep falling is frustrating. Or does that make you feel anxious or sad? Dakila Chungyalpa of the University of Wisconsin-Madison studies the emotions related to climate change. One of the things that the research is suggesting right now is that young people in particular have a tendency to move towards emotions like anxiety and anger, which are activating. You know, they 
compel you to do something. Whereas older people are more likely to react with numbness, resignation, sadness, emotions that can lead to more passive behavior, she says. Guilt or shame also show up. It's the feeling that you should be doing more or that you're complicit in causing climate change. And one person can feel many different emotions, Chung Yalpa says. I asked her how she feels about 2023 being the hottest year. Well, how do I put I would say it's a combination of emotions, you know. I definitely can feel exhausted. Exhausted by the endless cycles of elation when it feels like humanity is taking steps to rein in emissions, followed by despair when another record falls or there's another climate-driven disaster. Chung Yalpa says she tries to stay even-keeled, but it's hard. I tend to veer between grief and determination, I think, personally. For those who also experience grief around climate change, whether it's an amorphous sense of loss or a more traumatic experience like surviving a wildfire or hurricane, she has this advice. I just allow myself to absorb it and to let it wash over me. You know, there's only so much you can suppress. And there have been years I've suppressed it because I sort of, you know, said, I have too much work, I have too much to do, I don't have time for my grief. But sooner or later, (laughs) sooner or later, it all comes crashing. One emotion that Chung Yalpa is wary of is hope. Not that there's anything wrong with hope, but she says sometimes it seems like people treat hope as the antidote to more negative emotions. There is a certain subset of our population that wants to focus on hope. You know, that really is chasing this emotion, (laughs) this very elusive emotion when it comes to climate change. And personally, I've learned to really trust courage. Bova, the climate scientist, holds on to hope. Courage is taking action. Um, I think you need hope to have courage. She gets hope from her work as a scientist, she says. Bova studies what the Earth's climate was like millions of years ago and how it's changed and bounced back from cataclysm over and over. I think it's just kind of a general sense of awe, right? That this is where where we find ourselves and uh, it's a pretty pretty special place and we shouldn't necessarily take that for granted. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. It's just a few days before Christmas, but the holiday spirit in some places has been going strong since late November. Hundreds of residents in Milwaukee string up lights and display decorations in a neighborhood that they call, at least during the winter holidays, Candy Cane Lane. It's a, tradi- it's a tradition that spreads cheer and also serves a purpose. Eddie Morales of member station WUWM takes us there. <laughs> You might recognize who this jolly fellow is, dressed in his signature red and white clothes. It's Santa peeking his head inside car windows and greeting visitors. Dozens of cars snake around the block here in West Allis, a suburb of Milwaukee. Trees are wrapped in white and red paper to look like candy canes throughout the neighborhood. I smile the whole time I'm here. It's just so much fun, especially when the little ones say, You are real. Hello, hello. Hi, Merry Christmas. Ray Lazarski is a volunteer Santa, and he and his wife, Jolene, are part of Candy Cane Lane's effort to raise funds to fight childhood cancer. People drop donations in buckets as they drive or walk by to see the holiday displays. 
Besides the holiday lights, there are snacks too, like crates filled with candy and dog treats. Outside one brightly lit home, inflatable snowmen and cartoon characters sway with the cold wind as music plays and volunteers chat with kids. Thank you. Hey guys, you know who's up here? Santa Claus. Are you ready for Santa? Just yeah. dropped off our letters at the uh, North Pole Express mailbox. All right, he's up there. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas. The long line of cars at Candy Cane Lane's entrance is growing. Jeline Lazarski, who has volunteered for a decade, says that's no surprise. This holiday tradition has been ongoing since 1985, and everyone knows the lights and excitement are just part of the festivities. Help supporting the MAC Fund and Childhood Cancer Research is a real important part because I think everybody knows somebody's life that was touched by cancer. So it's close to home. Frank Donald has been witness to the generosity and to the crowds. He's lived in the neighborhood for 37 years. His house is one of the most decorated. A projector casts falling snowflakes on the home's facade. Hundreds of LED lights illuminate the prop snowmen on display. And a large painted sign on his lawn reads, Welcome to Candy Cane Lane. Everybody seems to love it. I mean, you know, our sign gets a lot of attention. A lot of people come in the yard and just get pictures taken. For Megan Moss, it's a familiar sight. She visits West Dallas's Candy Cane Lane every year. There's definitely some lights that are the same. So we always go back to like our favorite ones, but there's some new lights and it's always really fun to see like what's the new trend this year and what kind of blow ups they'll be and that kind of stuff. What are some of your favorites? There's a giant tree at the end of the street that they light up the entire thing. That's definitely my favorite. It might be hard for some to choose a favorite among the swirl of color and twinkling lights. Mike Malloy, who's lived in his home for nearly 20 years, says it used to be a friendly competition for the best decorations among his neighbors. But he laughs and says that changed when new folks moved in. He points to the house next to his. And she was actually set up before Halloween. Wow. Or, or literally right after Halloween. That's a little too early for many in the neighborhood. But most decorations are up by Thanksgiving. That's when Candy Cane Lane officially opens and the place stays lit in the effort to fight childhood cancer through Christmas Day. For NPR News, I'm Eddie Morales in Milwaukee. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, we'll remember Ruth Seymour, the woman who helped transform a sleepy little public radio station in Los Angeles into a public media powerhouse. That story is still to come. Clear and dry tonight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, more winter sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-40s. The time is 530. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. 
I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. TikTok is denying it suppresses content critical of the Chinese government. NPR's Bobby Allen reports it follows a new report from independent researchers that claim the video streaming app is manipulating the public debate on China-related topics. A report from a group of experts at Rutgers University found that videos on TikTok on issues sensitive in China appear far less often than on competing social media platforms like Instagram. The researchers say TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese tech company, is likely influencing the public debate on topics including Hong Kong protests, the Muslim minority Uyghurs in China, and the war in Gaza. The researchers concluded that TikTok content is amplified or suppressed based on its alignment with the Chinese government. TikTok has long said there is a firewall between the company and its Chinese parent company. A TikTok spokesperson said the report used flawed methodology and that the suppression claims are baseless. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Reports of poor shelter conditions are emerging in Chicago. Michael Puente of member station WBEZ says the city is now housing nearly 14,000 newly arrived migrants at 27 temporary locations. He cites problems at one shelter in particular. More than 2,000 people, about half of them children, are in that shelter where the young boy died. It's a sort of converted warehouse. They have cots right next to each other, a leaky roof, unsanitary conditions, no milk for children. You know, reporters cannot go inside, but I've received several photos and videos from at least two women who are living there. They describe it as terrible, like a prison. It's so bad that the women told me they regret coming to the United States. That's Michael Puente reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Large buildings in Boston will be required to be carbon neutral in less than 30 years. The city has finalized regulations that set carbon neutral standards for the buildings by 2050. They include non-residential buildings, 20,000 square feet and more, as well as residential buildings with at least 15 units. City officials say these large buildings only make up about 5% of all buildings in Boston, but they account for about 40% of citywide greenhouse gas emissions. Massachusetts officials will open a new overflow site in Cambridge tonight for homeless families who are on the wait list for the state's family shelter system. The facility is only open at night. It'll support about 70 families. WBR's Gabriela Emanuel reports it comes as community groups and religious institutions also step up to help. The Bethel AME Church in Jamaica Plain has converted office space into housing for eight Haitian families who are all new arrivals to Massachusetts. Danielle St. Ival is a member of the church and volunteers as an English teacher twice a week. The best thing is that you have folks who are on fire to learn and they're extremely grateful as well. It makes it all around easy for everyone to work together. The temporary shelter is supported by a grant from the city of Boston and the nonprofit Immigrant Family Services Institute. It's part of an effort to increase overflow space in recent weeks. State officials say there are now 367 families on the shelter wait list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel.
COVID rates are ticking up once again in Massachusetts. State health authorities report a 20% increase in cases in the past week. Last week, there were more than 5,400 new COVID cases and 25 related fatalities in the state. The increase has prompted Dana-Farber Cancer Institute to reinstate a masking policy at its facilities. And economist and Nobel laureate Robert Solo has died. Solo was a longtime professor at MIT who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1987. He died yesterday at his home in Lexington at the age of 99. It's 535. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Not a bad winter we're having one day in. Clear tonight, staying dry in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies inching to the mid-40s. Sunday, we could have overcast skies, the mid-40s again. Then Christmas Day Monday is looking cloudy, at least as of now. Dry and milder, coming close to 50. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Neon with Ferrari. Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey, opens in theaters Christmas Day. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. The United Nations Security Council today passed a resolution calling for steps to be taken to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. The resolution stops short of calling for an immediate ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. That war began after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, killing some 1,200 people. And since then, more than 20,000 people have been killed in the Palestinian territory amid heavy Israeli bombardments. That's according to Gaza's health ministry. The U.N. resolution passed today was the subject of lengthy negotiations among diplomats on the Security Council, all aimed at avoiding a U.S. veto. In the end, the U.S. abstained from voting altogether, as did another permanent member of the Security Council, Russia. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. and joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Delighted to be here with you. Why did the U.S. abstain from this resolution? Well, the resolution was not perfect. The resolution did not condemn Hamas's really horrific acts of October 7th, and we have regularly raised that as a concern in the council. Mm -hmm. And we also thought the resolution should have call for additional pauses that would allow for more humanitarian assistance to get in quickly and allow for hostages to be released. But that said, Mm -hmm. there were some positives in the resolution. But what specifically in the resolution uh, did the U.S. have enough of an issue with to not vote for it? Because I'm looking through it and there's a lot of language here that, that I assume the U.S. supports underlying the urgent need for full, rapid, safe and unhindered humanitarian access. You know, talking about the civilian population in the Gaza Strip must have access to sufficient qualities of assistance that they need, including food, water, sanitation. What specifically did the U.S. object to? It was the lack of condemnation of Hamas that was specifically 
a concern for the United States. But as I said, we did not vote against the resolution. Our abstention was a way of allowing this resolution to pass because of the important elements in the resolution that supports mm -hmm. uh, getting humanitarian assistance to those in need, getting uh, the hostages medical treatment, allowing fuel and food and medical supplies to get in. I do have a question about some of the negotiations that, that led to this vote. Um, as, I, as I mentioned at the top, there were concerns that the U.S. might veto if certain language was in it, including language calling for an immediate ceasefire. Why doesn't the U.S. want uh, a call for an immediate ceasefire at this point? Look, Israel has a right to defend itself. And calling for an immediate ceasefire when Hamas continues to barrage Israeli territories with constant uh, bombing, when Hamas continues to say publicly and openly they intend to carry out another October 7th-like event, does not give confidence to anyone that a ceasefire is what is needed now. Israel has a right to defend itself, and that is a right that we, as well as other Security Council members, support. This resolution calls for more aid to make its way into Gaza. At the same time, a lot of the active aid groups in the Gaza Strip say this resolution wasn't enough, that the need is urgent, that many people are dying. What are the concrete steps being taken on the ground right now to get those medical supplies, to get that food to the people who need it? We do believe that the, the needs are urgent, and we know that this resolution will create the conditions that will allow for a sustainable cessation for immediate and urgent steps to get the safe uh, and unhindered and expanded humanitarian assistance and access to people on the ground. We worked to get a second border crossing open, Karim Shalom. That border crossing is open and now more trucks are going through that crossing. And we know that the resolution will help to supplement, as I said before, the direct diplomacy that the United States is taking on the ground every single day. Coming back to that main point, though, any concern that with that diplomacy that's taking place, uh, that the U.S. doesn't lose any ability to push for what's needed when it did not affirmatively back this current resolution? Uh, this current resolution, every single person in the room knew that it was through U.S. efforts mm -hmm. that this resolution passed. It created a monitoring mechanism on the ground. It called for the appointment of a humanitarian and reconstruction coordinator. We helped to negotiate all of that language that will get us to a place where more assistance is going in. So our efforts were very much appreciated. Our efforts were positive and our efforts led to the passing of this resolution. That's the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. All right, Elsa, I've got a little riddle for you. What, what animal has thick fur, hoofed feet, and a strong association with the Christmas season? Oh, this is easy. Reindeer! Oh, uh, you thought so, but it's not. It fits the bill, but if I asked the people of Yavla, Sweden, they would likely say, wait for it, a goat. A goat? Oh, that thing. 
what Scott is talking about is this one humongous goat. Am I right? Yeah. The Christmas goat in Jävle or the Jävle goat is about 13 meters high. What did I tell you? It's a huge goat. <laughs> Anna Corinne Niemann works for the municipality of Jävle, Sweden, and she also is the official spokesperson for the Jävle goat. And I guess we should clarify that this is not a real goat, but every year, <laughs> just Thank putting you, it out there, facts, people in the town of Jävle erect a towering hay-based monument to celebrate the Christmas season. We have 10 people building the goat and we have to do it all by hand. So they knot uh, the hay with, I think it's 12,000 knots. So it's a very difficult work and the builders are really experienced and has done this for many, many years. Oh, that's a lovely tradition. There is another tradition among the more mischievous people of Yavla. They are driven to destroy the goat, sometimes by pretty extreme measures. He's been kidnapped. A car has run into him to destroy him. And when he was a little bit smaller, they tried to just knock him down, you know. Neiman says the most common way the goat meets his doom is by getting burned. What? He's even been shot with flaming arrows. <laughs> in fact, since the Yavla goat tradition started back in 1966, the goat has survived through to the new year only 20 times. But why, you may ask, why do people want to kill the goat? That's what I want to know. I think it's like tension that's been built over the years that will he make it or will he not make it? The city is on it. It's taking stronger measures to protect the goat. He now has a round-the-clock security detail with guards and a camera. But even with all of that, a new threat has emerged this year. Birds eating the grain that is left in the straw. So this has never happened before, uh, actually. I guess everyone and everything is trying to get this goat. <laughs> While those peckish birds may have left the goat with some battle scars, Neiman says he is still standing strong. Well, he looks a bit um, uncombed or unkempt, maybe you can say. Uh, to me, he's still really handsome, of course. Uh, but he looks a bit like a punk rocker, maybe. <laughs> Rock on, handsome Yavla goat. Rock on, you punk. We believe in you. This is NPR News. Right now, the sound of my voice is causing a lot of brain activity in an area just above your ear. That's where your brain processes spoken language. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a team of scientists who are using a new technology to study the cells that make this possible. The human brain recognizes speech instantly and without apparent effort. Dr. Eddie Chang, a neurosurgeon at the University of California, San Francisco, is part of a team that's been trying to understand how our brains do this. It's a really remarkable feat, translating the sounds that we hear that come in through our ears into things that we understand, like words. The team studied eight patients having a type of brain surgery that requires them to remain conscious. During the operation, surgeons temporarily implanted a new kind of probe in an area of the cortex, the brain's outer layer, that is critical for speech perception. Then the patients listened to dozens of recordings that included all the speech sounds of American English. It was nobody's fault. Have you got enough blankets? Yet they thrived on it. Junior, what on earth's the matter with you? Meanwhile, the probe, which is roughly the size and shape of an eyelash, was monitoring nearly 700 individual brain cells. Chang says these cells are highly organized. There is, in fact, a map where specific spots along that cortex are actually tuned to different speech sounds like the different parts of consonants and vowels. Some cells respond to ah sounds, while others wait for an o oh or b or k. 
The researchers had used an older technology to map these cells across the surface of the cortex. But the new probe offered a three-dimensional view that included cells beneath the surface. The scientists thought these deeper cells might respond to the same speech sounds as those on the surface. But Chang says that's not what they found. When you eavesdrop on the activity of hundreds of them across this depth of the cortex, there's actually a tremendous amount of diversity. So just beneath the cells responding to an ah sound, there could be cells tuned to b or k. And what that means is that speech sounds, you know, the different parts of consonants and vowels, are being processed by cells that are literally microns apart. Chang says this organization may help the brain process speech sounds quickly and efficiently. The study appears in the journal Nature. And David Popel, a neuroscientist at New York University and the Max Planck Institute in Germany, says it addresses some basic questions about how the human brain processes language. What is the parts list? And how are those parts put together to make it so smooth and easy to speak, to listen, and to connect the stuff that you say to the ideas in your head. Popel says the study looked at only one brain area in just a few patients. Even so, it shows the potential of a technology that can monitor hundreds of individual neurons instead of just a few. Every time you get a finer way to measure something, let's say a better microscope, you discover a new layer of interesting information, right? So it's more and more fine-grained. The research adds to the evidence that the human brain is organized to recognize individual speech sounds rather than entire words or sentences. Popel says that seems to confirm an idea that dates back nearly a century. The idea is that there is actually an organization of speech sounds that is quite abstract, but that holds for all languages. Because the challenge is, of course, well, we're speaking American English right now. But that's very different from, say, Norwegian. Or Urdu, or a Bantu language. Popel says what all those languages have in common is a set of speech sounds that the brain can transform into meaningful words and sentences. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the U.N. Security Council is calling for increased aid deliveries to Gaza to ward off famine. It adopted a resolution after days of tough negotiations to avoid a U.S. veto. The U.S. abstained, and so did Russia. That story and much more still ahead. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston. A new podcast from the Boston Globe and HBO re-examines the Charles and Carol Stewart case, probing a story everyone thinks they know, but doesn't, revealing hard truths, new findings, and changing the narrative of a pivotal time in Boston's history. Murder in Boston, wherever you get your podcasts. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. First official day of winter was pretty darn nice. The clear sky should continue tonight, as should the cold temperatures down around 24 degrees. Tomorrow's looking mainly sunny with some fair weather clouds should rise to the mid-40s. Sunday could be a cloudier day, still in the 40s, and then some of the clouds could hang on. Christmas Day Monday, temperatures approaching 50 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. 
Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving to create more of the stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or even your old car. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Public Radio has lost another personality, Ruth Seymour. For 32 years, she was the general manager of KCRW in Los Angeles, one of the most influential radio stations in the country. She died today at age 88 at her home in Santa Monica, California. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. Anyone listening to KCRW from the late 1970s till 2010 knows her voice. I'm Ruth Seymour, KCRW's general manager, and my guest... She was very direct, and she could be really strong in what she said. She was also extremely funny, really funny, and so smart. Jennifer Farrow worked with Seymour closely for 16 years and is her successor at KCRW. She literally did not care what other people thought. She was always like, I want to push ideas forward that have intellectual rigor, that matter. Ruth Epstein, as she was born, grew up in the Bronx... She studied Yiddish literature and theater and married a beat poet. After living in Europe, she began her radio career in Los Angeles at the Pacifica radio station KPFK. And she got kicked out and they changed the locks on her. Like Pharaoh, former NPR correspondent Frank Browning says Seymour always spoke her mind. She had no patience with rigid minds, either of the left or the right. And she never cleaned up her accent or hid her Polish Ashkenazi roots. Seymour got to KCRW when it was still in a classroom at a junior high school. She woke up the once sleepy community college radio station with DJs who played eclectic, cutting-edge music from around the globe. In 1979, Seymour introduced L.A. audiences to a new program called Morning Edition. At the time, Jay Kernis was head of programming for NPR. He spoke to KCRW in 2010 when she retired. To me, Ruth was always in a conversation with the audience. She was always saying, hey, I want to try this show. You like it? Okay, we'll leave it on. You don't like it? Forget it. Seymour brought on the air new voices like Joe Frank with his late-night monologues. The other day, I was ushered into the office of Ruth Seymour. And art connoisseur Edward Goldman. You know, Ruth definitely, she knows how to put you in the corner. For many years, Seymour hosted a weekly radio program with Amnesty International. She celebrated Hanukkah every year on the air, and she also hosted a weekly show called The Politics of Culture. Today we're going to focus on religious tensions with three writers. Well, well you know, i got to tell you, if you say there's no question, then you're denying there's even an argument. And we're going to talk about a, uh, a rather contentious issue today. We're going to talk about the left and the split the on the revolutionary left. Revolutionary now, thinkers, writers, literary critics, and philosophers. On air, Seymour also read aloud articles from the New York Times, and she would break into regular programming when there was big news, like the 1992 Rodney King uprising or the 9-11 attacks. Seymour was also a familiar voice during the station's fundraising pledge drives. No one berates the listeners directly except for Ruth Seymour. Public radio host Ira Glass. Like Ruth is like the unchanneled id of all the things that all of us want to say to the listeners, 
but feel like, well, you can't say that. Take it in your own hands. Listen on your own damn dime. 800-600-KCRW. Glass says he partly owes his success to Seymour, that she wanted KCRW to air the radio show he created in Chicago, the one NPR turned down. This American Life became one of the most popular radio shows in the country. Glass says Seymour pitched it to other public radio managers. She said, look, I got nothing to do with this show. I barely know these people. Uh, I'm not an investor in the show. This isn't a KCRW show. Um, You know, know, I I don't have a financial stake in this. I'm not sleeping with anybody on their staff. But I just want to say, you know, know, I think this show is something special. I hope you pay a lot of attention to it. And I never would have dared to ask her to do this. When Seymour retired as KCRW's general manager, the staff crowded into the recording booth to celebrate her. It has been a joy and a privilege to serve you. And I know that you will keep KCRW the distinct and unique station that it is. Good night, everybody. That was KCRW's Ruth Seymour signing off. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. Every year, in hundreds of towns around the country, tuba players gather for what's become known as Tuba Christmas. Their concerts range from just a few tubas to a few hundred. NPR's Netta Ulibi tells us all about that bass. This is the tradition's 50th year. On the very first Tuba Christmas, 300 musicians showed up at the ice skating rink at New York's Rockefeller Plaza. Since then, tuba Christmas concerts have popped up in practically every state. Anchorage, Alaska this year, Tombstone, Arizona, the Big Island in Hawaii. Here's one at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. A few years ago, overachievers in Kansas City set a tuba Christmas world record. We played Silent Night for five straight minutes with 835 tubas. Stephanie Brimhall works with the Kansas City Symphony. I asked her what one word might best describe the experience of hearing hundreds of caroling tubas. Rumbling, it would be one. Enveloping. That's Mike Galimo. He directs the band program at Iowa State University. It's this warm, low organ kind of quality where you can feel food in your lower intestinal tract move because of the vibrations. Galimo says that's a good thing. So is the chance for all kinds of members of the tuba family to take the spotlight for a change. Usually those big, fat-toned brass instruments never get to play the melody. This year we had a helicon, which is like a Civil War version of a tuba. And somebody had an Clyde one year. Usually there's a few people that have a double bell euphonium. Less exotic are those white fiberglass sousaphones they play in marching bands. We call those Tupperware tubas. That's tuba humor. You'll hear a lot of it. We call it the heavy metal concert of the year. My first two Christmas when I was in middle school. I attended it with my father, who was a tuba player as well. Charles Ortega has been playing at tuba Christmases since the 1980s. This year, he organized one in Pueblo, Colorado. Ortega learned tuba from his father, who used to perform in a polka band in Texas. He loved playing the tuba. 
Even the, the year that he passed, he was still playing. Some of Ortega's very best tuba Christmas memories, he says, were the ones where he played with his dad and his teenage son, who also plays the tuba. That was amazing. I had one on one side, one on the other, and we were all just beaming. It was great. It's not uncommon now for multiple generations to play in tuba Christmas concerts. That's what happens when a tradition endures and gets bigger, broader, and brassier. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, a clear and dry evening to take us into the holiday weekend. Tomorrow should be sunny, inching up to about the mid-40s, and then staying sunny for Sunday and Monday. As of now, it looks like we could have clouds around both days. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Dozens of cargo ships are changing course to avoid the Suez Canal because Houthi militia in Yemen have been attacking vessels. The attacks are in response to Israel's offensive in Gaza. Well, now they are moving to another narrative, which is we are the only group who stood strongly with the Palestinians. This is all things considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, the U.S. Supreme Court already has agreed to consider two cases that relate to Donald Trump. A third may be on the way after a Colorado ruling to take him off the primary ballot. And Globe Santa has received 17,000 requests this year from people in need. The editor of Globe Santa's newspaper story says at any time, anyone could become a person in need. One thing that Globe Santa has taught me is that countless people of all income levels are just one diagnosis, one job loss due to COVID, away from financial ruin. I'm Jack Spear. The health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza now says the Palestinian death toll there has risen to more than 20,000. Meanwhile, the United Nations Security Council has voted to approve a resolution that would call for the expediting of aid deliveries to desperate residents, but without the original language calling for urgent suspension of hostilities. Still, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield says it's an important step. This resolution will 
create the conditions that will allow for a sustainable cessation for immediate and urgent steps to get the safe uh, and unhindered and expanded humanitarian assistance and access to people on the ground. The long-delayed vote was 13 to nothing, with both the U.S. and Russia abstaining. The Washington Post and its newsroom union have reached a tentative deal that boosts pay, especially for junior employees. NPR's David Folkenflik reports the Post just bought out 10 percent of its workforce. The last contract extension ended 18 months ago, and union members had staged increasingly dramatic work actions. The Post, owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, recently offered bonuses that would vanish if the deal wasn't struck before the new year. The union didn't get all it wanted, but pay will be lifted notably over the next three years from 8 to 30 percent. The Washington Post News Guild calls the deal without question the best contract it has won in half a century. That's a knot untangled for incoming Post CEO Will Lewis, who is to take over the financially troubled paper in two weeks. Lewis is still dogged by allegations he helped cover up wrongdoing at Rupert Murdoch's British tabloids a dozen years ago. He's denied that without addressing specifics. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Nike plans to lay off workers as part of a plan to cut up to $2 billion in costs. The company also slashed its annual sales forecast, sending down its own stock price along with rivals Adidas, Puma and Lululemon. NPR's Olina Seljuk has more. Nike blamed slumping online demand, particularly in the key market that it calls Greater China, which includes Hong Kong and Taiwan. In the latest quarter, store sales in the region grew 16 percent, but Nike digital sales fell 22 percent. Executives said they're seeing, quote, more cautious consumer behavior around the world, and so they're taking a more, quote, prudent approach. Nike laid out a cost-cutting plan to save up to $2 billion over three years. This will include more automation and layoffs. The officials didn't specify the scale, but did say they plan to reduce management layers. They also said the restructuring would include simplifying Nike's product assortment. Alina Seluch, NPR News. The measure of inflation closely watched by the interest rate setting Federal Reserve showed signs of easing last month. The report from the Commerce Department shows prices at the consumer level down a tenth of a percent. Inflation seems to be moving closer to the Fed's 2% target. On Wall Street, the Dow lost 18 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cannabis Control Commission Chair Shannon O'Brien was denied her appeal for a public hearing today. This comes amid her battle with the state treasurer who suspended O'Brien in September. WBUR's Irina Machavariani reports on the latest in the case. O'Brien was seeking an open hearing with an independent official to contest the treasurer's decision and clear her name. But the judge is allowing Treasurer Deborah Goldberg to schedule the hearing and keep it behind closed doors. The hearing would determine O'Brien's future with the Cannabis Control Commission. In a statement, O'Brien called the judge's ruling an error and said she's considering an appeal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. Whole Foods did not break the law when it disciplined employees at a Cambridge location for wearing clothing with the words Black Lives Matter on them. A judge for the National Labor Relations Board ruled in favor of the grocery chain this week. Employees at four stores sued in 2020, saying they were unfairly disciplined over Whole Foods' dress code policy. The employees can appeal the decision. The state is proposing regulations that will prohibit new development in certain coastal areas prone to flooding. The action comes as the state faces increasing threats from flooding and sea level rise due to climate change. Here's WBR's Barbara Moran. 
The proposed regulations would still allow renovation of homes in the so-called coastal floodplain, but could require that construction include mitigation measures like dune or wetland restoration. Bonnie Heipel is commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. You could rebuild, but if you're rebuilding, you'd have to do things to make that more resilient. And that's, we think, both better for the homeowner, you know, and better for those around them. The state will hold public hearings on the proposed regulations early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The State Department of Transportation has some tips for those hitting the roads for the long holiday weekend. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the agency plans to temporarily halt construction on the Sumner Tunnel from Logan Airport to help out with traffic. There will be congestion at times. Holiday schedules are in play and travel will be impacted, so please take this into consideration. And State Police Lieutenant Eric Bernstein reminds you to drive responsibly this season. The State Police will be deploying saturation patrols and sobriety checkpoints across the state to remind people to drive sober or get pulled over. Officers will stop drivers who they say are driving dangerously. Traffic company Inrix expects tomorrow and next Thursday, December 28th, to be the busiest travel days on the roads. Glacier Gobbler, Sleetwood Mac, and Snowby Wan Kenobi. Those are a few of this year's winning names of the state's Name a Snowplow contest. The names are selected by Massachusetts transportation officials from entries submitted by local elementary and middle school students. Other winners include the Mayplower, Snowhemian Rhapsody, and Fast and Flurious. In the forecast, no snow, just clear skies. Dry tonight, should have temperatures down around 24 degrees. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, some fair weather clouds should rise to the mid-40s. And then cloudy skies due in on Sunday and on Christmas Day, Monday, temperatures in the mid-40s. 31 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. The Supreme Court is declining to hear, at least for now, a major dispute about former President Donald Trump. This afternoon, the high court turned away a request from prosecutors to fast-track an appeal about whether Trump has immunity from federal prosecution. The dispute now heads to an appeals court in Washington, but it could return to the Supreme Court next year. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the case and joins me now. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Scott. So prosecutors had asked the Supreme Court to move with urgency on this immunity issue. Why didn't the court do that? The court didn't give any reason, and it did not say how many justices might have disagreed with the decision. So whatever happened behind closed doors will stay that way for now. Special counsel Jack Smith had been pushing the court to decide once and for all whether Trump is shielded from prosecution over January 6th. Lawyers for the former president says say there was no need for a rush to judgment. They said this is a major constitutional question and the courts should take their time with it. At least several justices agreed with Trump's position. So this is a short-term victory for Donald Trump. So what does that mean, though, for the federal election interference case against him? This immunity question is now in the hands of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and that court is moving pretty quickly. They've already set oral argument in the case for January 6th. 
Whatever that court decides, though, it's now in the hands of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. That court is moving pretty swiftly. They've already set oral argument in the case for January 9th. Whatever that court decides, though, this issue's headed back to the Supreme Court before the election. The D.C. trial, which had been set to start March 4th, will now be pushed deeper into 2024, closer to the convention and the heart of the presidential campaign. Right. Trump is is running for president, and we know the timeline of a presidential election. But there are three other criminal cases here that he's facing. What does this delay mean for them? It's unclear for now, Scott, but it could really upend the entire calendar for next year. Trump is fighting 91 charges across four different jurisdictions. If the D.C. trial date for the spring of 2024 slips, maybe the New York case or the Georgia case goes forward, or maybe none of them do before the election. And if Trump wins, his fate could be in his own hands. He could drop these federal cases and delay the state cases until after he leaves office in 2029. (laughs) And going back to to the earlier headlines from this week and all of this, the Supreme Court may get another case involving Trump on its docket. That is that case out of Colorado, where a court there ruled that Trump should be disqualified from the primary ballot. What's at stake there? Yeah, the group bringing this lawsuit is arguing Trump should not be eligible to be on the primary ballot because of his alleged role in inciting the insurrection on January 6th. The Colorado Supreme Court agreed, but Trump has promised to appeal to the Supreme Court, and he's going to stay on the ballot while the case proceeds on appeal. There have been a number of other challenges in different states that have been rejected, so the Supreme Court may need to weigh in here to clear up which state is right One of the key issues in play is whether Trump got enough due process in Colorado. And if this wasn't all enough to keep track of, there is another big legal question looming that could upend a bunch of January 6th cases, including Trump's, right? That's right. This is about whether actions on January 6th amount to obstruction of an official proceeding. Congress passed a law about that after a wave of accounting scandals. But some defendants argue that breaking into the Capitol is not the same as tampering with evidence like papers and documents. The Supreme Court is going to hear that case with a decision likely by the end of June. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Thank you, Kerry. My pleasure. And you can hear more about President Trump's legal issues and the 2024 election on the Trump's Trials podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Dozens of cargo ships are diverting all the way around Africa and avoiding the Suez Canal. That's because Houthi militants in Yemen have been attacking vessels passing through the Red Sea, which leads to the Suez Canal, all in response to Israel's offensive in Gaza. This week, the U.S. announced a naval task force in the Red Sea to safeguard the passage of ships. But the Houthis have vowed that they will not be deterred. NPR's Fatma Tanis explains why. At a conference this week in Sana'a, Yahya Sari, the spokesman for the Houthi army, spoke to a crowd of Yemenis. He said the same American bombs being poured on Gaza are the same American bombs that were poured on us in Yemen nine years ago, adding that they would not stop attacks until Israel stops the war. The Houthis are a tribal militant group allied with Iran. In 2014, they overthrew the Yemeni government and have fought a bloody civil war against a Saudi-led coalition that used U.S. planes and weapons for nearly a decade. Now the conflict is at a stalemate, and Ahmed Naji, the senior Yemen analyst for Crisis Group, says there are several domestic and regional issues at play. The Palestinian cause is one of the key pillars of the healthy ideological narrative. 
since the establishment of the movement. The Houthis are not exactly popular among most Yemenis. The civil war has caused immense suffering, killing hundreds of thousands. There's been hunger and disease. And while the Houthis are de facto governing parts of Yemen, including the capital Sana'a, they haven't been providing help or services to the people not even paying their salaries. Gaza war was to some extent a way out for them. They now tell people that, uh, look, we are at war, but this is a different war and you should be silent. So we cannot provide you with anything. But Naji says in a country as divided as Yemen, the Palestinian issue is a unifying concern across tribes and factions. So they need to act to show their people that they are the movement of actions, not the movement of words. The Houthis have launched drones and missiles at ships passing through the Red Sea. They even hijacked a vessel. They've also tried to attack the south of Israel and U.S. carrier ships in the region. Most of them have been blocked. Still, the Houthi army has been publishing propaganda videos and songs, strengthening their position beyond Yemen into the region where sympathy for Palestinians is strong. This week, the Houthi leadership immediately dismissed U.S. efforts to defend against their attack with the nine-country naval task force it's leading. But Gerald Firestein, the former U.S. ambassador to Yemen, says as the U.S. continues to protect international shipping, there are other priorities it will need to consider. The administration has been very cautious in the way that it's approached these challenges and tried to maintain defensive posture as opposed to being more aggressive in how it responds to these Houthi provocations. One issue is the U.S. does not want the war in Israel to spill over into the region. There's also the ongoing conflict in Yemen, where the stalemate has made way for peace talks. But if the Houthis continue to attack ships... They will, if they have to, turn to offensive measures, and that could undermine efforts to resolve the conflict, to end negotiations between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, and that would not be the solution that the U.S. wants. Analysts say Houthi attacks on ships will increase costs around the world and make food more expensive in Yemen, adding more suffering to what is already one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Fatma Tanis, NPR News. The United Nations Security Council is calling for stepped-up aid deliveries to Gaza as humanitarian workers warn of famine. The council adopted a resolution after days of tough negotiations to avoid a U.S. veto. The U.S. says it wants to help the people of Gaza, but also thinks Israel has a right to continue to fight Hamas there. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The ambassador of the United Arab Emirates visited the border between Egypt and Gaza last week, along with some other council diplomats. Ambassador Lana Nuseba says she met a boy the same age as her son recovering from an Israeli airstrike. He told me he just wanted to go home and see his parents. And it was heartbreaking to hear from hospital staff that he had no idea that the strike that had wounded him had also killed every single member of his family. She drafted the resolution and spent days changing the text to avoid a U.S. veto. That meant not calling for a ceasefire, even though that's what she and many others want. Often, in diplomacy, the challenge is meeting the moment in the world we live in, not in the world that we want. And we will never tire in pushing for a full humanitarian ceasefire. 
The Biden administration vetoed previous U.N. calls for a ceasefire and was criticized around the world and in the U.S. This time, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield abstained in the vote, allowing the resolution to go through after what she called tough negotiations. She says she's still appalled that the council has not condemned Hamas for the October 7th attack on Israel, which started this latest round of violence. It took many days and many, many long nights of negotiating to get this right. But today, this council provided a glimmer of hope amongst a sea of unimaginable suffering. The resolution calls for urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access in Gaza and to create the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he still believes that a humanitarian ceasefire is needed now. He says famine is looming in Gaza and the hospital system is, in his words, on its knees. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world People who have seen everything tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. And he says there's been no significant change in the way the war has been unfolding in Gaza. The U.S. has been pushing Israel to do more to protect civilians and move to more targeted operations against Hamas, but says there's a gap between what Israel says it's doing on that front and the reality on the ground. But the Biden administration calls this a war of Hamas's making. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org givemeals. Prices are going down and consumer spending is trending up. We'll talk about the good economic numbers this evening with business news starting at 6.30. The Dow dipped a small fraction today. S&P rose nearly two-tenths of a percent to notch its longest weekly win streak since 2017. The Nasdaq also rose about two-tenths of a percent. Bristol-Myers Squibb is buying Boston Biotech Karuna Therapeutics. It's a $14 billion cash deal. Karuna was founded 14 years ago. It went public in 2019. Its lead drug is an antipsychotic designed to treat schizophrenia. Shares of Karuna closed up nearly 50 percent today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair at One Brattle Square. Local crafts for gift-giving today through Saturday, the 21st to 23rd. HarvardSquareHolidayFair.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Clear skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-20s. Then for tomorrow, should be sunny with temperatures in the mid-40s. Clouds move in for Sunday and for Christmas Day on Monday. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. 
This is according to data in what's called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or the PCE Index, which I know is a mouthful. It seems pretty (laughs) jargony, but it is the inflation gauge that matters the most to the Federal Reserve. It's this really broad measure of inflation. Okay. We've seen this disconnect between the economic data, which have been getting better, and how people are feeling about the economy. Surveys have shown that's starting to change. And what's notable in the data we got today is people have continue to spend. Americans are still buying stuff, even though interest rates have gone up and they've remained elevated north of 5%. We saw that in November, Elsa, people were still going out to dinner and they were still taking trips. Woohoo! Okay, all this sounds pretty good, right? It is. And it's remarkable when you reflect on how much has changed since the beginning of the year when inflation was still high, the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates to fight it. And there was this widespread fear that the Fed would not be able to win that fight without triggering a recession. So there was all this negative sentiment about the economy and its prospects. And Mark Desard reminds us, this has also been a really tumultuous year for markets. Desard is the chief investment strategist in the asset management group at the firm PNC. You know, investors have lived through an entire lifetime in 2023, um, from banking failures, rate hikes, multiple labor strikes, the geopolitics, debt downgrades, possible near shutdowns. It's a laundry list, but we are now in a very different place, and that conversation has shifted. There's a lot less talk of a potential recession and a lot more talk, Elsa, about the Fed pulling off this so-called soft landing. There is more optimism they'll be able to get inflation down to their 2% target without a massive economic downturn. Okay, so what led to this shift? Well, a key moment for the economy and for markets was last week when the Fed wrapped up its final meeting of the year. Policymakers did not raise interest rates. That was widely expected. But what was a surprise was how hopeful the Fed sounded about the economy, a kind of hopefulness from the Fed that we have not seen in a while. <laughs> Policymakers shared economic projections for 2024, and they said they anticipate cutting interest rates three times in the new year. That's a real change of tack. Of course, if the Fed does that, brings interest rates down, well, borrowing would get less expensive, and that would be a big boost for the overall economy. So I'm curious, like, how has Wall Street reacted so far? Um, Wall Street has really embraced the Fed's hopefulness about the economy, (laughs) and investors are cheering on the Fed, hoping that policymakers will lower interest rates soon in the new year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has been setting records recently, and the S&P 500, which includes 500 of the biggest and the best-known companies in the world, is also close to a new record high. It's up almost 24 percent this year. Looking ahead to 2024, we are seeing really optimistic forecasts. This rally will continue. Professional investors are predicting we're going to see more good gains. Of course, there are no guarantees, but there is this growing sense a soft landing is likely to happen, Elsa. And Wall Street, like the economy, is ending the year in a very good place. Nice. That is NPR's David Gurra. Thank you, David. Thanks, Elsa. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This holiday season, some 30,000 children in Massachusetts will be guaranteed a present when they otherwise might have had nothing. The presents are from Globe Santa, otherwise known as the Boston Globe Foundation. Globe Santa has been delivering boxes of toys and books to kids in need every Christmas since 1956. The project is non-denominational and is paid for by donations. Here's how it works. A child or family member handwrites a letter to Globe Santa to say why they need help. The letters get vetted, and some of them reach the desk of Globe Santa editor Linda Matchin. Her job is to write a newspaper story that's based on the letters. Matchin says the people writing the letters paint a vivid picture of some of the toughest issues in the headlines. You can see the pain in their writing. You can see that they can maybe they can barely write. You can see that they're 
extraordinarily well-educated and articulate and expressive, you can see that these are all kinds of people who belie the common misperception that these are just lazy people who are choosing not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Give us an example of those letters that have arrived this year. Well, this year, we're seeing a lot of letters from Ukrainian families who have come here perhaps leaving their husband behind to fight in Ukraine, but they've managed to come here with a small child, and they write letters about how traumatized their children are, how they still can't sleep at night because they're afraid of bombs. And you brought in one of them. Uh, This one says, our family came to the USA from Ukraine a year ago because of the war in our country. We've had a challenging year, but my children have shown great fortitude and adaptability. And then she goes on to say, I would like to ask the foundation to help us create an atmosphere of magic for my children and prolong their faith in Santa Claus and miracles as long as possible. The plight of refugees, people who are new to this country, is one thing. You deal with other issues very much in the news as well, as displayed in the letters you get. Tell us about some others. There was one little boy I remember who wrote this beautiful letter saying, Globe Santa, I'm trying really hard to be good because... I'm staying with an aunt and uncle, and I don't want them to throw us out. They often feel that they're just on the edge, and they are. I mean, one thing that Globe Santa has taught me is that countless people of all income levels are just one diagnosis, one job lost due to COVID, uh, one accident away from financial ruin. I've listened to all sorts of stories. I just finished one in which the children suffered from blindness. And so what happens in these cases is that the parents can't both work. One parent has to be able to stay home with the child just to take them to medical appointments, but also to advocate for them. And that results in the family income taking a huge nosedive. And again, they just need help to get through the holidays. One of the other major issues in the region, of course, is opiate addiction and substance use disorder. Do you find many letters that come in having to do with those issues? I see a lot of letters that come in dealing with substance abuse, and very often they come in from the guardians or the grandparents of the children, or in several cases, this really astonished me this year, the great-grandparents. There was one case in which a woman who was a mother was struggling, and the grandmother wrote me that she'd been murdered. And the case was still unsolved. And, you know, I looked it up, and it was a recognizable case. You know, that's sort of when you read the paper, that's where you think the story ends. But that's not where the story ends. There are children who are struggling, who just want to be like other children. And that's kind of where Globe Santa comes in. You know, people often say to us, why do you give them toys? I mean, those are not, as one writer put it to me in a a letter, those are not exactly life's necessities. But if you're a child and you remember back to being a child, it is a necessity. You just want to feel like other kids. Even I remember going back to school after Christmas and everybody saying, well, what did you get? Tell me what you got. And imagine if you got nothing. It just can make a child feel really worthless. And this gives them a little bit of dignity. I guess another thing I should say is, you know, we often hear from people who are adults now who were Globe Santa kids when they were little. Mm. Meaning that they received from Globe Santa. They received toys from Globe Santa. One person, I was reading this letter today, actually, said, you know what? We got dolls and we got, you know, a pretend pinball machine and we got trucks and they were all very cool. But it didn't really matter what we got. 
what the gift told us was that somebody remembered us, and that made a huge difference to us. Linda Matchin, uh, thank you for telling us about your work with Globe Santa and how nice to know that it's making such a difference for people. Thank you for having me. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. And Endless Energy, committed to installing proper insulation and keeping homes comfortable and energy efficient. No-cost home assessments at goendlessenergy.com.